Hey, this is Tommy from Dust Biters, and you're listening to Concerts That Made Us. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. That made us interviews and stories, tales from the bus. We love taking you back to when it all went down. The greatest live shows and that cheering crowd sound. It's concerts, concerts that made us, concerts that made us.com. On this episode, I'm joined by Nick and Tommy from Dust Biters. We have a great chat all about their latest release, Progeny the music video to go with it, the guys releasing a Dust Biters burger and ale, and everything else to do with Dust Biters. I know you're going to love this episode, so without further ado, let's get on with the show. <laughs>
Nick and Tommy, you're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. It's great to have you now. I'm looking forward to getting an insight into your music. We opened the show with your single Progeny. I hope I'm saying that right. It's off your debut album, Guilt. Can you tell us a bit about the track? Yeah, sure. So Progeny was actually the last song that we wrote for the album, and it ended up becoming the lead single off the album. It's a song that Nick Kinsley wrote lyrically about his kids, sort of a a song that has to do with lots of themes on the album, including, you know, guilt and shame, but, but more over um, how you can overcome that and sort of the redemptive nature of life and asking for forgiveness and sort of moving forward and, and finding hope in, um, in his kids. And I think that's, that's something that really is resonated most in the chorus of the song. But for us, it was, you know, a, a really powerful song to write musically. And I think it, it hopefully connects well with the lyrics and his themes um, for those sorts of um, elements of forgiveness and and progression and and moving forward in life. Ah, I see, I see. And you also have a a pretty cool music video to accompany it. What was your experience like making that? Oh wow, uh, that's a fun question. Um, so yeah, so we we kind of concepted out the idea of the music video at band rehearsal. Um, and then Nick Kinsley, our lead singer, he owns a a barber shop here in Chicago called Black River Barbershop. And one of his clients is actually uh, like he works in film and works on TV shows and stuff like that. And I think in passing, he just kind of like told him a little bit about our concept. And he loved the concept so much that he was like, you know, this summer I have a lot of downtime. If you guys want to shoot that video, I'll do it for you for free. You just got to cover all my costs. So we had to like rent the gear, find extras, find actors, find a location and all that stuff. And he handled all the filming and all the editing and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, being broke and not having anybody that like no label to pay for anything. uh, We jumped at the opportunity to have such, you know, a a super talented person help us out in this scenario. Uh, We reached out to some of our contacts and friends at CH Distilling, who if anybody's familiar with Chicago, Illinois, um, they actually make Jepson's Malort which is very much a Chicago thing. And if you ever come to visit Chicago, you will be forced to take a shot of it. Uh, <laughs> but they were they were nice enough to let us use their empty lot because in Chicago, there's not a lot of areas that kind of look like an open field uh, to accommodate the scene that we needed to shoot. And uh, we were able to do it all there. We intended on shooting all of our outdoor scenes all in one, one day on the 4th of July. Well, the universe had... Uh, uh, other plans for us. Our, our bass player got into a fight with uh, one of these big metal gates, which busted open his eye and sent him to the hospital to get stitches. Our singer's business had his front storefront window smashed in while we were filming. Um, our, the guy who was doing the behind the scenes for us, he accidentally like drove over like this small incline and it caused his axle to snap and his wheel to fall off. <laughs> so we also had to get the car towed at like 11:30 p.m. during Fourth of July. Um, that was that was a very very intense day, and we actually I wound up having to reschedule everything. So we were able to raise more funds through our fans that were nice enough to support us by buying a T-shirt through us to re-rent all the gear and do all of it again two weeks ago or two weeks afterwards. Um, so we had to like basically reshoot all of the outdoor scenes and get that all knocked out. Uh, but yeah, I mean like we shot everything in two different locations. Um, you know, Tommy can kind of speak a little bit more on the person that played our cult leader 
and things like that. But it was a very, very interesting experience filming that music video. But the, the final product is in, it really, really awesome. And he did a great job expressing exactly what we wanted in that video. Yeah, yeah. With so many things, I have to say, with so many things going wrong, though, how did you guys power through? Were you not like, right, the universe is telling us like not to make this video? We're well, insane kind of, people. The joke, so for sure. <laughs> yeah, we the, between uh, among the four of us. I mean, we just love what we do in the band, and I think one of the one of the reasons why I love playing with these guys so much is just the sense the sense of humor. I mean, we're all extremely self deprecating, and and just we, we look at life and to the best we can um, in a humorous way and just try to make sense of things through music and through, you know, just, just sharing time with each other and making each other laugh. And, and uh, so absolutely it, it could have been discouraging, but uh, not only were we amped to get back and film um, and actually, you know, make, make it happen, but it was the support of everybody involved in the production from the director down to people that were helping us with catering everybody else they weren't getting paid i mean they they wanted to come back and make the video and so that was just hugely inspiring for us um to be able to say yeah let's do it i mean it's we're all in it together let's make this happen yeah yeah i see i see and uh nick mentioned something about the guy who played the the cult leader would you like to tell us a bit more Sure. Yeah. His name is Brian Wendorf. He's not an actual cult leader yet. He um, is the artistic director and lead programmer for the Chicago Underground Film Festival here in Chicago, the uh, world's longest running underground film festival, which I've had the pleasure to um, program for for a few years now. Um, he's been a good friend of mine and, and the band. And when we were brainstorming casting for that role, just, I just tossed it out and we you know, me and Nick Miller were like, oh my gosh, it's perfect. <laughs> just his look and his attitude and everything. And Brian agreed to play the part. And I mean, I think he just knocked it out of the park. We were super lucky to have him. And and uh, yeah, it just worked out really great. Ah, well, I have to say, after looking at the video, you know, and hearing now that you guys kind of put it together with your own money and there wasn't a huge, huge budget. It's unreal. It's like something you would see on MTV back in the day, you know, just the quality of it it just it doesn't show that you guys kind of didn't have backing or whatever if you know what i mean thank you very much that's really that's really nice of you to say and that's really kind of like what we were hoping for and one of the reasons why i think that we were so determined to make sure that the video happened is you know like this was an opportunity for us to put out something professional uh that looked like we knew what we were doing a little bit um but tommy i mean maybe maybe your memory is a little bit clearer than mine but i think the whole thing might have cost us out of pocket like eight hundred dollars you know once we talked about like renting the the generator and the dolly and um you know covering like catering and things like that but i think we did the whole thing for under a grand yeah pre pretty much it was a few pieces of production equipment um and then yeah just a few things here and there that we needed to rent um but on the whole it, it was again just volunteers and people just putting in their time that that really uh, helped us and of course like the quality of talent so matt cooley who directed you know shot directed edited the entire thing he just has a great eye i mean he he uh, a large part of the reason why this turned out the way that it did was just his ability to understand our concept and really flesh it out um and make it happen put it on screen so you know huge props to him and to all the the extras and everybody but yeah 
hopefully we put on a good performance. Hopefully it's entertaining. Um, yeah, we're really proud of it. Between the music video and the the single, what has the reaction been like from fans? It's been, I mean, it's been, it's been great. Like we, we got a ton of compliments on the music video. A lot, a lot of people reached out. Um, I think that a lot of our extras were kind of thinking that they were just kind of doing us a favor and they're like, all right, yeah, we'll go along with this and be in your music video. I didn't think, I think there was even like one extra that told us that she really hoped that she was cut out of it because she was kind of embarrassed that she was going to be in it. And then when the video came out, every single one of them reached out and was like, this is incredible. This is really well done. Like, I, I hope you guys are happy with the video because I'm really, I'm really proud to be in it. And like, they're sharing it and showing their friends. So like, you know, like that, that felt really good to have people go out of their way to reach out to us and, and, you know, tell us how, how much they liked the video and how cool the concept was. Um, and it's also garnered like a lot of cool reviews, a lot of people that own like blog sites and, uh, you know, talk about music and music news and stuff like that have been nice enough to, you know, host the music video on their website, give like a small brief description and just share it with their audience which i think you know like if you're willing to go out on a limb and vouch for us like that i feel like that's a huge compliment as well yeah definitely definitely and when it comes to you guys making new music what does that process look like you know how do you approach songwriting putting the tracks together and stuff usually nick miller and nick kinsley will come to our studio with some riffs if not like a a collection of a song and then we we just work together to to piece it together. So, you know, I'll, I'll start by laying down a couple of different beats and really trying to figure out where those, those um, parts need to be ac like accented in the riffs. Um, Brian will jump in and try to add some kind of, you know, bottom end uh, compliment to things, but it really, it's, it's bare bones. I mean, they're bringing riffs, they're bringing half, you know, it's maybe 80% fleshed out songs. And then we just work together as a group and try literally anything that we can think of so if i say let's try this in in halftime we'll try it and if it works it works if not we'll scrap it and try another idea so it's an incredibly like collaborative democratic process um, but we just we work until a song sounds good and feels good to us and makes us happy and if that takes a couple of days or a couple of months i mean we've seen it both ways so it's really just writing in service of the song and, and what makes us feel like uh, we have something special to us. And I think also too, we don't really get discouraged or frustrated with the writing process. It's, it's probably, you know, I think we, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I've heard them all kind of say this. I think we all really, really enjoy the writing process. So spending time on writing music for us, you know, is a joyous thing and not laborious at all. And one of my favorite parts is, you know, when we get kind of close to finishing something, um, you know, I, I, I don't mind talking on this, but I, we like to, you know, dabble in cannabis and then just start experimenting and trying things. Um, I mean, recently we've been trying to figure out how we can fit in like disco beats to, you know, under and putting them underneath solos just to see <laughs> right. like, will it get us out of the realm and make the, the song feel a little less like one specific genre or a little less like we're worshiping a specific band just because, you know, it's just like, well, let's see how this sounds and how it'll work. And we've surprised ourselves more times than, than not with, with just trying something really out of the box just to see how it goes. Jeez, that uh, that really is thinking outside the box. And something else that's thinking outside the box is when it comes to marketing, you guys 
I've I've never heard I've heard of bands that have released, you know, beers and stuff like that to go along with their music. But you're the first band I've ever came across that have released a burger. And personally, I'm a huge fan of burgers. So I'd love to hear some more about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess like both Tommy and I would be the the right people to speak to. Um, so we both work for a, a company here in Chicago called Kuma's Corner. Uh, it's a metal burger bar that's been around since 2005. That's kind of like a lot of the reputation that they built has been dedicating burgers and working with bands in the metal world. Um, and and I mean, lucky for me, I have a really cool position with a company where I handle a lot of like the marketing and promotion and I get to do a lot of like the band relations and stuff like that. Um, that's actually kind of how I became friends with Tommy is he was one of the people that hired me into the company because he's the general manager at one of our locations. And I started out as a server working for them. Um, and then we just spent a lot of time, a lot of downtime talking about music and becoming friends. So, uh, you know, like when we were getting ready to release our album, uh, the, the director of operations approached both me and Tommy and was just like, Hey, you know, like if you guys want to, we can do a burger for the band to help with marketing and promoting the album. And, you know, like I, I think, both me and Tommy kind of already kind of submitted to the fact that we weren't going to push a burger through our own company. And, you know, we did, we wanted to make sure that it wasn't disingenuous and it didn't come across as if like we were getting favors and stuff, but because the, the, the company kind of approached us and told us that it was something that they wanted to do, we were like all, all on board let's make it happen. And we got to, you know, incorporate ingredients that represented our backgrounds and where we grew up and where we were from. Um, it came together really really well it was super delicious and a lot of people were really excited for us and a lot of people came out for the first day of it but yeah I, I agree with you like you see bands that tend to put out you know beers and different other types of collaborations it's not very often that you get to see a band do food <laughs> and it's i mean like i i was kind of like a you know like remembering back when i was in high school and thinking about like how badly i want to be in a band and just get out and play shows and stuff like that and you know if i got to go back and 37 year old me got to go back and talk to 16 year old me and be like, no, dude, don't worry. Like some, at some point in time in the future in Chicago, Illinois, your band will have a burger. Uh, <laughs> I'd be doing backflips, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'm kind of sitting here wondering uh, how you could put one of them burgers in an envelope now and send it to Ireland. <laughs> That's something that we've actually been trying to figure out ourselves. And so far, anything that we've experimented with has not been the best results, but when we get there, you will be the first one I reach out to. Brilliant, brilliant. And um, before we dive into your own personal music history, I'd love to hear about how the Dust Biters came to be. Uh, okay, yeah, I can I can talk a little bit about that. So uh, prior to me moving to Chicago, um, Nick Kinsley, our lead singer and guitar player, has been a longtime friend of mine. We actually played in a like, I don't know, like a technical experimental death metal band kind of thing that was very similar to Between the Buried and Me. And he played bass. And that was kind of where we we had been friends, but that was where we really kind of like solidified our friendship, especially through music. And he was 20. I was 22. He was going to go and pursue hair and he wanted to be, you know, like be in like the, the, the beauty industry and become a barber. And I wanted to continue to pursue music. I was invited to be in a band in like the Ohio area. So I moved out to Ohio to pursue that. He wound up going to school in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which eventually led him to Chicago. So that way he could try and build up his career and build up his name. So while we were both kind of living like these, you know, different pathways and individual lives, um, we, you know, both stayed in contact and talked regularly. And uh, something that's 
Chicago is kind of really well known for at this time is a festival called Riot Fest. And they're known for booking a lot of crazy punk bands and, and, and getting a lot of bands to do reunions and things like that. I mean, like these last two years that everybody's gotten to see my, my chemical romance come back together. I mean, you all kind of have riot fest to thank for that. They've been pounding those guys to get back together and, and just trying to do everything that they could. And they, they, I finally successfully got them to do it. Um, and one year, our collective favorite band Glassjaw, was on the bill and he invited me to come to Chicago. He said, dude, you'll love Chicago. You'll love this festival. You got to come out. Uh, and he was not wrong. I fell deeply in love with this city and spent the next five years of my life coming back every single year for Riot Fest and trying to sort out some sort of way to move here. Uh, what the final catalyst was when he told me that he was getting ready to have his third child and he was starting to open up his own barbershop. So uh, I had, I had, my sister was having her first kid. My grandfather had had a stroke. I was living too far away from home. Chicago was far closer to my hometown and my best friend lived here. So one night while I, you know, after I had moved, we were going out to celebrate my birthday. We were all talking um, and I just kind of threw out the idea of, you know, like, hey, you want to come over? I have everything in my apartment. I literally moved to Chicago with all of the gear that you would need to start a band. I have had a drum set, a PA system, a bass cab, guitar cabs, multiple guitars. Uh, so I just invited him over one night to just screw around. The idea was just to write like some straightforward three chord punk, maybe like, 80s hair metal style stuff, like things that would just be just fun. No goal in mind, just fun. Just something that me and him could do because we love playing music. And we knew that the idea of doing this professionally is a very far, far off goal that we weren't really taken seriously. We just wanted to have fun and write music. Hmm. And I pitched to him the idea. I had the band name Dust Fighters in my head for a while. Pitched the name to him. He loved it. We went back and forth on whether or not we should add the to the beginning of it. Um, I think we finally just settled on taking the out and just going with Dust Fighters, similar to Foo Fighters. And uh, yeah, that was, I mean, like the beginning of the whole band is literally just me and Nick Kinsley sitting on my couch writing riffs. And then when COVID hit, we had, there was nothing else to do. We were shutting our, our, our apartments for a year. So we would write riffs and send them back and forth over the internet and talk out ideas until stuff started to open back up. And then once things started to open back up, that was when, I, be I begged Tommy to come in session with us and play drums. And when we heard the drums to our riffs and the, the, the ability for us all to get together and write these songs kind of came so quickly that we kind of just knew that it was something that we had to pursue and keep going with it. It seems like it was kind of an almost, once you got together, it was an easy process. I know a lot of bands at the start, something you don't hear of often, but it's actually a problem for a lot of bands is being able to play in time together and being able to play well together. Was that kind of an easy thing for you guys to get into straight from the start? I'd say so. I think, yeah, I, I, the fact that Nick Miller and Nick Kinsley were such good friends and, and I was becoming good friends with Nick Miller, they, they were just, I mean, it would be like going to see two guys like, you know, that haven't seen each other in years, just like hanging out. I mean, they're just so funny. Um, they know each other like the back of their hands. I mean, this, this past practice, uh, it was hilarious. Like one of the things, one of the interactions that they had was so funny because they just know each other so well and they've played in bands together. So when I was sort of brought into the fold, I was just, you know, a very active listener and, and trying to pay attention as much as possible to them. And then coming from a, my musical side, it's, it's all about what can I do creatively as a drummer to, to be as melodic as I can rhythmically. And their riffs are so 
wild. I mean, there are things that I'm a guitarist as well. I would never write the sort of riffs that they write that coming from the perspective of putting drums on it, it's so much fun to try to play a, and I'm doing air quotes now, rock beat on some of the stuff that they do um, because, you know, I want to compliment them and also do something that's, that's different. Um, when we added Brian Fonseca to the group on bass, again, I just go back to the four of us. We make each other laugh. We enjoy hanging out with each other. It's never a chore. I, I would say, and I know this is true for all of us, practicing uh, once a week, which is where we're at right now, is, is the most fun time that we have during that week is getting together. And, you know, if we do 90% practicing and 10%, you know, just hanging out talking, that's, that's great. Sometimes it's the reverse. And that's fine too. Um, so I think the natural chemistry of of friendship um, and mutual respect for each other um, allows itself that when we actually get into the writing process or even on stage, we're very actively paying attention to one another and, and really trying to uh, to work together, whether or not that's conscious or unconscious. We we also learned really early on that because of how much fun we we have playing these songs, that the adrenaline will kick in and we'll we'll speed up are playing very quickly. Like by the time that we're, we start a song and then we would finish it, we'd be almost doubled, double time from the time signature should be played in. <laughs> and uh, so Tommy, you know, like he eventually went to wearing uh, ear earbuds. So that way he could be on a click. And then we just kind of all rely on him to keep us on time because if he didn't, we would, would definitely, the adrenaline would kick in and we'd be playing all of our songs in double time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That'd be interesting now, at a show. <laughs> so we'll um, dive into your music history. If you can now, can you remember your earliest musical memory? Uh, so I had I had a friend in uh, like that I've known since I was a very small child, and uh, his his parents were kind of like the the parents that had a little bit like looser looser rules, you know. So we would go and hang out at their place and. They'd allow us to watch horror movies that we definitely should not have saw at that age. Um, we were playing, you know, board games that were well above our uh, intelligence level. Um, so, what, you know, like the first thing that I really remember, and I think this is one of the reasons why this band is, is so important to me, was, you know, a night of playing Risk with my friends in, in middle school and his parents going through their tape collection and they were big into the metal scene, um, like the sunset strip, like hair metal scene. And they were talking like Jackal and firehouse and stuff like that. And I just remember how much I loved twisted sister. And like, I would make them play that tape front to back over and over and over all the time. And I mean, at this point I have D Snyder tattooed on my body. Um, I regularly hunt down twisted sister t-shirts. I beg the band to cover twisted sister, uh, all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, like that's probably like the first thing that really kind of pops in my head of like when I I would had like a really big impact by music I was listening to. Yeah, that's uh that's definitely one of the most interesting ones I've heard anyway. And um, Tommy, what about yourself? Mine's pretty wild. Um, so my earliest musical memory was actually a VHS tape of Victor Borga, who I don't know if anyone remembers, but he's this like Danish pianist and comedian uh he passed away like in the early 2000s might have been 2000 um but my grandmother had a, a vhs tape it was like the best of victor borger or something like that and i would just watch that religiously and this guy was a virtuoso on piano and he could play 
just any, he could do things blindfolded. He could play behind his back. He, uh, he was just wild. Um, but he also had an incredible sense of humor and a lot of his stage show, especially on that VHS was basically him going back and forth between, uh, jokes, just straight up jokes and then jokes on the piano and then him playing the piano. And I was just amazed with what he could do on the instrument and how he could talk about the instrument and make fun of the instrument uh, and, and be a performer. Uh, I was, I was just so you know captured by um, him as, as an entertainer and, and as a virtuoso on the piano. So I begged my parents to um, get me piano lessons. Uh, this is probably like age three. Um, and I was too small to do it. So they bought me a Casio and I just banged the hell out of that thing. But that was my earliest memory. And then of course, you know, just listening to music around the house. My, my parents love music. They had a crazy record collection. My aunt and uncle uh, were hippies. They got married outside playing acoustic guitar, singing. So music was just always around my, mm. uh, my life. So it was, it was very seamless for me to, to want to uh, figure out where all these sounds are coming from, how they're made and, and try to figure out how to organize them and recreate them myself. So, and that just, you know, permeated from there into the rest right. of my life, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, during your teen years, I always find that that's the time when you really start discovering your music taste. What kind of music were you exposed to by your peers growing up? And how do you think it molded you or helped mold you into the musician you are today? So uh, I grew up in North Carolina um, and I started out um, like I said, on piano, and then then I went to drums, and my, my like early music education in like lower school, middle school was was about mostly North Carolina jazz history. So like John Coltrane, Nina Simone, uh, Thelonious, like Max Roach, I mean all these iconic jazz musicians from the South, and all with amazing voices. So that that was a really amazing place to start for me in terms of. Um, like performers and writers and and jazz history. And then, you know, I, I'm 35, I was born in 87. So of course, you know, I got swept up by grunge and and kind of early hip hop. So very much molded by um, by musicians from that era. Um, and then my parents as well. So, you know, I, they turned me on to like Santana. So like Michael Shreve was a big influence at first. Um, like Carly Barrett, uh, who played with like Bob Marley. And then... You know, as I just continue to get older, um, drummers like John Theodore and Darren King from uh, like Mars Volta, Hugh Math, respectively, obviously Dave Grohl, mm. um, and just the music of, of my parents um, and my peers around me, just trying to absorb as much as possible. And again, just go back to wanting to figure out how to recreate sounds that I would hear and, and try to, uh, to learn how to... Um, express myself through different instruments and, and collaborating with different people and getting their perspectives on, on music. Ah. And Nick, what about yourself? Yeah. I, um, I mean, so I grew up in a really small town, so I, I, most of my music exposure was, you know, whatever was on the radio. And unfortunately for me, um, a lot of my family and the people around me listen to a lot of pop country. And so, I mean, like to this day, like I have a very, uh, strong distaste for any sort of like popular country music that you could find on radio um, just because it's it just hurts my ears you know um, but at some point in time I, I remember befriending some people in, you know, like early middle school like maybe 
fifth or sixth grade for me. Um, and they, they were really into nineties hip hop. And, uh, I just remember everybody being into no limit. I don't know if anybody remembers that old hip hop record label with master P. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was kind of like my friend circle was kind of like all really into that. And I just remember being so young and desperately wanted a no limit tank chain to wear. And I don't, <laughs> don't, for the life of me, don't remember why it was so important, <laughs> um, but I wanted one. And eventually, like, as I, I met friends that were, you know, into skateboarding and things like that, that was when I kind of got introduced to punk music and, uh, you know, metal at the time. I, I wasn't really, I didn't really resonate with like thrash and some of them, like the faster, you know, Slayer and things like that. But, you know, new metal really kind of it sunk its claws into me. And I just started exploring a lot of what was, you know, new metal, new metal adjacent. Um, you know, what kind of influenced those bands, um, what bands they were performing with and touring and stuff. And then I don't know if anybody remembers that old, you know, order by CD uh, or order CDs by mail company, uh, CD Warehouse. But we discovered a loophole in their system that if you ordered the 12 CDs and paid for the 13th one for 99 cents and you signed up everything underneath your own name, when they sent the bill, all you had to do was have your parents call them and say, you entered into an illegal contract with a minor and this isn't valid. And then they would stop calling. So you'd get right. 13 CDs for 99 cents. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so me and probably like four of my friends all did it right around the same time. And we just all ordered different CDs from each other. And then we would just pass them around and, and loan them out to each other. And, um, you know, the ones that we really loved, it was almost like trading cards to us, you know, it'd be like, Oh, I'll, I'll give you this kitty CD for, you know, that Slipknot album or, you know, whatever. And, that was kind of my middle school and how I, you know, gained a love and appreciation for metal music. Mm. And, you know, when you were just getting into music, what was your local music scene like? What was it like for shows? We didn't have one. Uh, we had a, we, it was a very, very small, small town. I, I do remember being. I think it was middle school and I had a science teacher that played in like this really weird I guess you could say punk, but it was, you know, it was just a, almost like alternative rock band. And they played our local movie theater and all of our parents allowed us to go and watch that. And that was like the, that was the beginning and end of the music scene up until I hit high school. And I started throwing shows with the band that I was in. And then we started, we started the actual like local music scene for my tiny little hometown. <laughs> is it that, is it yep. still going today? Uh, I've, I've, I've heard rumors or like not rumors, but I've heard stories of bands saying that they've played, um, like the community center in my hometown, but I mean, it's been probably years since I've heard anything about that happening. So I don't think that there's anybody doing anything, but there are people that live there that are still in bands and they're, they're getting out there and playing shows. I just don't think anybody's playing shows in our hometown anymore. Uh, and, uh, Tommy, what about you? Wilmington had a great music venue years ago called the Soapbox that brought in some some awesome acts. Um, we were very lucky to have that. Now, I, I think, unfortunately, it's a Waffle House, but um, that was a, a really amazing venue. I think the last band I saw there was Minus the Bear, and then there was another band with Jimmy Chamberlain on drums. Um, awesome place to go see touring acts, but in terms of like underground music scene, it was all house parties growing up, just playing like punk or pop punk or you know whatever kind of version of metal we thought that we were playing 
um, mostly house parties, but it, it was still a blast. I mean, we would find ways to get together and places to go play. And uh, yeah, I had a really fun time um, back in those days. Right, right. Now, as a concert goer, what concerts do you think have made you? So I have a little bit of a lengthy story for that, but I I, I do have a pretty interesting story around that. Okay. Um, high school, probably my sophomore year, um, I had an opportunity to attend school in Lansing, which was the capital of Michigan. My my mom had moved over to there, um, and she you know basically was just like, well, why don't you give it a give it a try for a semester, see how you like it. Um, and I was exposed to a lot of, a lot of different new opportunities, like an acoustic guitar class, which is probably where I learned, you know, the basics of reading music and understanding time signatures and composition and stuff like that. Uh, but ultimately that led to me befriending some people with cars, which allowed us to drive to Detroit to see concerts. And I remember when Lincoln Park had literally just broke, they had just released their first single and they were still playing small clubs and they were headlining a show. I think it was like head PE and I can't remember who the other band on the lineup was. Oh, nonpoint. Um, a very, very new metal show. And we all got tickets. We were all very excited to go out there on the way in. This was the era where you would just get hammered with um, handbills and flyers when you'd go in concerts and out of them. There'd just be 30 people handing out flyers to like, come to this show, come to this, buy this, whatever. Um, somebody handed me a little flyer for a band doing an in-store appearance the following day. Now, I was like 16 years old. I grew up in a small town. The idea of meeting a band in person was, you know, so unobtainable to me that I, I had begged my friend to, you know, like the following day, like, is there any way that we could drive back to come meet this band? I've never even heard of the band. I didn't even like know a single song by them. I just knew <laughs> that they were going to be there and that we could meet them. Uh, so he, I, against his, you know, mother's wishes and anything else that he had going on, I was able to convince him to bring, take me back to Detroit. And Detroit's a good two hour drive from where we were, where we lived. And uh, we go to the CD CD store. It's tiny. The band's, you know, just walking around kind of shopping. And I approached one of them and just was talking to him. And it was a singer. The band was called Relative Ash, which, you know, years later I found out it was actually from Chicago. And the singer was so incredibly nice. And, you know, like one of the last things he said to me is like, are you guys coming to the show tonight? And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize you were playing a show. He's like, if you want to come, I'll put you on the guest list. And, then, oh. you know, again, I had to do some more convincing to talk my friend into staying in Detroit later than uh, he planned. But we went to the show. We went to a legendary venue called Harpo's and uh, we're, we're watching the show. The bands are okay. Um, we're minors, so we can't drink. And the singer comes out to talk to us and, you know, we're just sitting there and we're talking and there's one guy and he is just going crazy. Like in the middle of the pit, just going nuts, just jumping around like crazy. He knew the words to every song that that band was playing. You know, and I kind of nudged the lead singer, the, the guy that got us into the show and was just like, man, check that guy out. And he was like, hey, I want to I want to introduce you to one of my friends. So he walks me right up to the psycho and mm -hmm. he's just like, hey, Alfonso, this is my buddy, Nick. I just met him earlier. He's a really nice guy. Uh, he's from the area and he's trying to get into a band. Um, and Alfonso, who. You know, now, if anybody is aware of his band, he's the singer of a band called Heartsick. But he went out of his way to make sure that he would come and pick me up from my home and brought me to his band practice where I was able to try out for his band. I failed. I didn't get into the band, but I started to like just hang around these dudes and learn the ways of what it is to be in a local band. You know, how do you book local shows? What are those? How do those shows operate? What's it like to load in, set up and load out, set up merch? 
deal with promoters, deal with venues, all of that stuff. I learned at like 16 years old, hanging out with these college kids that were in a band <laughs> that I met because I, like, I hounded my friend to drive me to Detroit to meet a random band I've never even heard of in my entire life. <laughs> so like that, that one concert going and seeing Lincoln Park in Detroit honestly may have been the catalyst to who I am today. Yeah, geez, you know what? I think I'm going to have to retire that question. I don't think I'll ever get an answer as good as that one. You know, I've never heard one before that, you know, that led to you actually getting into the music industry, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I, I feel I feel very, very, very blessed in that scenario. And had Alfonso not been so adamant about being a sober person, like he didn't drink, he didn't smoke weed, I'm sure that my parents wouldn't allow me to hang out with him all the time. <laughs> but he was like the nicest, like, I mean, like to bring him home to my parents, like, and to have him vouch for the entire metal and music scene um, was the only way that I probably was able to do any of that kind of stuff. Otherwise, my parents would have definitely never allowed a 16-year-old 16, 16 me go and hang out with these 22, 23-year-old college kids. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and Tommy, no pressure now. No pressure. I mean, you, <laughs> you said it yourself. How am I supposed to follow that? It's just crazy. I, I, I don't know. I, um, I mean, my first concert was my dad took me to Alabama at Alabama Theater. I mean, I just we, we would go see shows frequently when I was young, whether or not it was, you know, the Philharmonic or a jazz show or a local thing. I think that the one show that really um, inspired me was getting to see Dave Grohl play with Queens of Stone Age back in like whenever Songs of Death came out, 2002 oh, or something. Yeah. I mean, that that just, again, was, was uh, Dave Grohl was a drummer I'd always looked up to. Uh, Josh Homme was a musician that was doing things melodically with his voice and and um, through his riffs, kind of having like a little bit of a, a blues element that I really resonated with. So kind of seeing seeing that live um, at that age was hugely inspiring for me. But um, but yeah, I, I, I don't have a that's that's it. Dave Grohl. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually only speaking with a friend the other day saying Queens of the Stone Age are like the band that got away from me when it comes to have seen them live. I never saw them live, but. I heard whisperings that they're announcing a tour this year and I am praying they come over this side. Absolutely. Yeah, they're they're definitely one to see. Yeah, yeah. And for any listeners that haven't caught one of your shows, what could they expect? A lot of energy. Uh it's, it's performing our songs is probably one of the most fun things that we can do and it, we just want to make sure that everybody in that room is paying attention and having fun with us. And that's, that's, I want to put on a good show. Um, anybody that paid money to come in and see us, if they like, I, there's no way in hell I could just stand on stage and just play my instrument in front of people. Like we're there to perform, we're there to put on a show. Um, and I think that we do a pretty good job of that between, uh, you know, the four, I mean, like even watching Tommy, I, if, if me, Nick and Brian stood still, everybody could just watch Tommy and have a great time. Um, but I mean, we're constantly running around stage and, jumping off of stuff and trying to, you know, engage the audience and be as energetic and entertaining as we possibly can. Um, I think, you know, somebody, somebody once told us that, you know, like you can hear it in our music uh, about, about how much fun and how happy we are while playing that music. And I think that that really resonates and, and comes through when you're seeing, you know, four giant bright white smiles on stage while we're playing, because it's almost, 
it's almost we almost feel like we're getting away with something like who the heck who the heck thought it was a good idea to put us on this bill you know like <laughs> well, we're here and we're gonna enjoy it <laughs> that sounds like a hell of a good time and i love that you know the energy and the good vibes come across because you know there's life is hard enough already you know you should be when you're going to, to when you're going to a show like that and there's just such good vibe it's a it's a great thing for sure and and the the interesting thing is nick kinsley's lyrics aren't necessarily um always happy mm. but i think uh i think the music definitely is very genuine so you might not necessarily get every song that makes you want to chug a beer and run through a brick wall but at the same time we're putting the same passion and honesty into every single song and that same energy and i think that's what really resonates with the crowd so we can't afford the van halen you know thousand can lights or pyrotechnics quite yet but you can imagine that once we get to that point that's going to be on stage with us so right now you got to deal with the cowbell and the dueling guitar solos and just imagine <laughs> everything behind us right right and you guys have shared the stage with the likes of Glassjaw, Bongzilla, Electric Six, and Empty Streets. As a band, what gigs do you think have made you? Do any of them stick out in particular? I, I know that Glassjaw was definitely the show that erased um, any sort of nervousness that I'll ever have for a show ever again. <laughs> right. um, we That was a... a, a um a sold out show i think uh the capacity was two to three thousand people um so yeah that and i mean we're playing we're opening for our our heroes so even the off chance that they catch a song you know like i'm hoping that maybe they'll listen or watch a few more but you know i think i was more nervous to have my all-time favorite band see or hear me perform music that they influenced than i was to be in front of a, a crowd of you know, a couple thousand people. Mm. And now, you know, like people, I've had people ask me like, oh, do you get nervous before you perform? And I was like, ever since that show, not at all. You know, <laughs> like I just get excited now. <laughs> yeah, that that was, that was the show. I mean, that was the show that I think gave all of us um, sort of the credence to believe in what we were doing. I mean, we, we loved what we were doing beforehand, but the mere fact that we were asked to play that show um, with a band that's, you know, huge, huge influence on all of us. Um, and then to actually perform and, and feel like we did well. And, and it, it just, it felt really, really good. And um, I, th I think too often artists might doubt themselves and that might, you know, they might hold themselves back. But for us, I think that was a defining moment where we were like, okay, we are having fun doing this. People are receiving this well. We are able to play with bands that we you know grew up just believing were absolutely iconic. Um, this is something that we feel like we, we can do, um, that we should do. And uh, yeah, I just I think I think for all of us that that will be an incredible memory um, in terms of the early part of our career. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, from a performance or touring side of things, what do you learn when you're playing with bands on that level? Oh, the difference between playing, uh, you know, um, on uh, like a regional local band level versus, you know, national touring. I mean, we we pulled up and there was loaders ready to grab all of our gear for us. They gave us. 45 minutes to sound check and dial everything in. Um, you know, I feel like it kind of gave us a, a, a taste of what to strive for because, you know, like it's just, we've never had it so good. We had, they had a cooler filled with beer for us, waiting for us. <laughs> um, you know, so like it just kind of like taught us what to work towards. And, you know, and it also just 
it just kind of it just kind of showed us that you know like the things that we we struggle with sometimes when we're performing shows uh or performing at, at different venues and things they're not they're not just strictly because you know like we don't have the craziest most professional gear on stage with us um you know sometimes it's just the restrictions of where you're playing and performing and then that really inspired us to figure out well what can we show up to these events with that'll make it easier on the sound guy easier on the monitor person um allow us to be more consistent with our tones and our performances and things like that because uh you know like until we're you know out touring theaters and clubs and you know we have a sound person out with us you know it's kind of on us to make sure that we sound good uh so yeah so like it really like kind of helped put that little bug in our ears of like you know like all right we probably should start paying a little bit more attention on you know what can we what can we do to enhance our live performance so that way we, we're showing up with everything that we need and not relying on anybody else to make sure it comes through clearly ah, and we've heard the best gig in your opinion is there a gig that you would say is possibly the worst experience you've had or a gig that just didn't go right and how did you deal with it Ooh, that's tough um i mean like we haven't we, like so none of the things that have come to mind are anything that's like anything to really complain about you know that that we would really feel is something that is you know terrible but we've we played uh, a brand new we were the first show happening at a brand new music venue which you know like we walked in super excited and it was cool that they took a chance on us and the bill and all of that stuff um, what we didn't realize was that, you know, they still had a lot of dialing in to do. Uh, and, you know, we, they, they did such a great job of soundproofing the stage. So that way there was a lot of control with the monitors. Um, but the monitors weren't really fully dialed in. So every single one of us were kind of like, I can't hear anything. I had to stand in front of my own guitar cab and then find a place that I could you know, kind of stand between my guitar cab and Tommy so I could hear both myself and the drums. Because if I moved to the left or the right, even like, you know, like half a foot, I had no idea what was coming out of my amp anymore. Um, Because there was, there was no audio bouncing around the stage. So like, it was like just being absorbed into all the sound panels and stuff. Um, So yeah, I mean, like, and, and again, like, that wasn't even a bad thing. All that really did was kind of restrict my ability to perform. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, it it was a little frustrating for our first song or two while we were all kind of sorting out what's going on. Um, but I'd, I'd probably say that that was probably, you know, like the most challenging live performance that we've done to date. I agree. I, I like how you and I are, it's strenuous for us to come up with an answer quickly, <laughs> Nick, because I, and the fact of the matter is we talk about this all the time. Any opportunity we have to play live, it's not going to go hundred percent perfect. It never does, but we, we always debrief and say, okay, what did we learn from this? And anytime playing live in front of people, whether it's one or a few hundred, it it definitely beats the hell out of playing in our practice spot, right? So we're on stage, we're in front of people, we actually have, you know, room to feel like we're performing. So yeah, things can definitely go wrong and they will continue to go wrong forever. But the fact of the matter is that we all, you know, have a, a positive outlook on on um, seeing things as what can we improve and, and what do we learn from that? So I appreciate those guys for being so so cool about it and so willing to, you know, actually try to improve and get better and, um, and work together to, you know, hone our sound and, and craft the way in which we show up to venues and, and our professional musicians. 
Yeah, I mean, check back in with us in a couple of years if we're if we're on a headlining tour across America. Um, we might have an actual, you know, serious complaint or something <laughs> at some point in time. But as of, as of right now, you know, like Tommy said, we're we're extremely grateful for every performance that we get to do. Um, you know, when when I was in my twenties. I had the luxury of being able to blow off work and uh, prioritize playing any rinky-dink house party show, uh, local VFW, crappy dive bar performance that we got asked to do, no matter what the attendance was. And, you know, like those those were the times that, man, I can't believe my head crapped out in the middle of a set or, you know, like my, I didn't bring a backup guitar and three of my strings broke or something like that. And like, you know, issues like that came up all the time, but you know, in our thirties, our singer has three kids, our bass player has a kid, our singer owns a business, both me and Tommy have extremely demanding jobs. So if we can find time to, 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 to perform, it's the, the best, most fun thing that we're doing, you know, within a, that month. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to like really get down if we, if something goes wrong, if, you know, a string breaks or uh, something doesn't sound exactly right, or my monitors aren't where I need them to be. Um, I, it's just, well, that's, you know, that's part of the game. That's, it's always going to happen. And I'm just stoked that people showed up and wanted to hear us perform. Yeah. Yeah. I love that outlook. Now we've heard about how much fun you guys have on stage. Is there anything you can tell us about the antics that go on behind the scenes? What do you guys get up to? <laughs> We're just a <laughs> bunch of dirty, you know hooligans we 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 literally will just talk smack to each other and at the in the same breath you say that we love each other so i mean it's it's just, we are all just four crazy people that grew up and somehow still haven't grown up if that makes any sense whatsoever yeah i i mean our our number one goal is just to keep each other laughing like, I mean, I don't, we, I don't think we can be serious when we're all in the same room. That's sometimes, uh, the best and worst part, because when we have to have a very, you know, serious conversation or make a decision, it can take a very long time. Um, so yeah, so most of the time backstage, we are just, you know, cracking jokes, telling stories, uh, you know, like, oh, go on stage and say this, or, you know, like how hilarious would it be if this happened that, you know, and like, well, we'll just, I mean, like, yes, and each other through the whole time um and then yeah like tommy said we're we're a bunch of brothers you know like the the the, the best thing about being in a band with these guys is nobody's ego is so big that people feel genuinely hurt or personally attacked so we can just sit around and and, and make very terrible jokes at each other's expenses <laughs> and, and enjoy the whole part of it with that being said, if you ever want to know about Kinsley throwing his keys down a sewer or Brian fighting a fence or me chopping my finger off or or a trailer decoupling from our van mid-tour, we are more than happy to talk about that. But on a daily basis, Miller's right. We just keep each other laughing, and, and I think that's what keeps us strong. You know, in 30 years' time, what needs to have happened with your music career? when you look back for you to feel fulfilled and happy with everything you did? Oh, man. Um, to be able to just keep releasing it, I think that's, I mean, like, if we're if we're able to keep this as something that is uh, a priority in our lives and get to keep doing it and keep writing it, I would be very happy and very fulfilled. I mean, obviously, I would like to tour the world and see other countries. I would love to come to Ireland um especially at like 
because of the music that we wrote and because of the notoriety that we gained for our performances, you know, if that's our ticket, if that's what gets us on a plane and allows us to see Japan, um, you know, then yeah, that, that, I mean, like that's everything that I, I really, really want in life. Uh, but I would be very content and very happy and very fulfilled to just see the music that we write recorded and physically available you know whether that's on a vinyl a cassette or a cd i like knowing that that music isn't just you know in the ether it actually exists somewhere that people you know 30 years from now if we're all dead um which i mean i feel like we're getting to the point now where we'll just live forever in virtual reality or something but uh <laughs> somebody somewhere might find you know in an old box a copy of our cds and rediscover our music where if we never recorded it and we never put it out like that our music's gone forever in my mm -hmm. opinion, you know, like it, it dies with the people that wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. And Tommy, what about yourself? I agree. Longevity. I just want to keep doing it. I want to meet new bands. I want to play with great musicians. I want to keep writing and releasing music for us. And if people are out there and want to listen to it, I'd love to get it in their hands. I'd love to play in front of them. But this is the greatest joy. I mean, there's no doubt that we love doing this. And the mere fact that any single other person resonates with the music that we're creating or enjoys coming to a show i mean i'll, I'll keep doing it merely for myself but um, if not to meet other folks that share the same passion and curiosity and have different things to say um that it's going to take me my whole lifetime to work down my to-do list of, of musical things hmm. vintage instruments to play albums to check out bands to interact with it, it never ends so uh, the mere fact that we're able to to do it now and, and hopefully we'll be able to do it in 30 years. That's, that's a lifetime of fulfillment for me. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. And before we dive into the last couple of questions now, what are your future plans? What's locked in for you? Immortality. Um, we're working on finding a way to um, be able to do this forever. So uh, as soon as we can kind of get those potions complete, that would be great. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, right now it's just uh, write and release. So we've got four tracks um, about ready to um, be demoed at the moment. And so in the short term, it's it's trying to get these tracks recorded some kind of lo-fi way and then see if anyone is interested in helping us to um, get into a studio and actually do a professional studio recording with them, possibly release an EP here. And then just gear up for shows, spring, summer, and fall. See where we can play and who we can play with. I think that's the short-term goal. Oh, I like it. I like it. Nick, anything to add to that? I, I mean, like, yeah, he basically touched on everything. You know, like, ideally, I would really like to identify, like, a, a couple festivals uh, around the Midwest that might have us, you know, maybe do an opening slot or something like that, just because... Festivals are just so much fun to be a part of and to be involved with. So, um, you know, I'd really like to play, play, just play a cool festival that's happening around this area. Um, but primarily, yeah, it's, it's, it's get these songs out so people can hear them and uh, just play with as many cool people as we can throughout the rest of the year. Because, you know, I really do feel like we're right now we're in our um discovery phase i think we're we're starting to gain some momentum and some attention and so it'll be really interesting to see like what this kind of accumulates into uh for us you know like what kind of offers could be on the table in a few weeks and um I, I think it's right now it's just just keep our heads down and keep writing music that's the most important thing no matter what what falls on the table whether it's a, a show offer 
or a management offer or any of that kind of stuff. If we don't have music in our pockets to, to move forward with, none of that matters, you, you know? So we gotta, we just gotta keep being musicians and writing. Definitely. Definitely. Right. We'll, uh, we'll dive into the last couple of questions. Everybody gets these, I'm afraid. So you can't get off the podcast till you answer. If, uh, if you could see any performer from history in concert for one night only, who would it be? Jimi Hendrix. I like the quick response. <laughs> Tim Smith. I wish I could have seen Tim him. Sm- oh God. Yeah. Uh, mine would be Tim Smith from Cardiacs. No question. Ah, two very good ones. And this is a an interesting one now. If you had to spend 24 hours locked in a room with any musician from history, who would it be? Oh, man. Can I use the same answer? <laughs> le- le- legit, uh, no one has done more for me uh, musically than Tim Smith for Cardiac. So that would be my answer. Right. And what would those... Uh, 24 hours look like what would those 24 hours look like what would you hope to learn from him uh harmony melody uh he just has this incredible way of using the circle of fifths and and confusing people and um also his use of uh, the piano and harmonium and uh, just all sorts of incredible production techniques uh, he he I, I found cardiacs at the time in my life when i needed uh some form of music to come around and, and pull the rug out from under me and, and it did more than that um so i i mean 24 hours would not be enough for me to to observe let alone ask questions or or try to play music with him yeah yeah and nick what about yourself Oof. oh man I, I like i was trying to come up with like a solid answer while tommy was talking sorry tommy i promise I'll, i was paying attention to all your other answers <laughs> i um, can keep talking about cardiacs for a long time so if you want to keep thinking <laughs> <laughs> oh man um Gosh, I mean, like, when you're just talking about like, like musician, like if I got to spend some time with with just a musician, uh, 24 hours in a studio. Hmm, and I, I really can't like pinpoint anybody specific for some reason. I mean, like, I, I would, I would really like to spend that time with somebody like John Lennon, but I've gotten a little bit of a, of a window through that documentary that came out. Um, and I feel like I'm kind of satisfied. I mean, I would still take the opportunity for sure. But um, I think John Lennon would be my answer right now. Um, but is there is there? I, I, and I apologize for having to go, but I, I do have like a, a like a work like an important work meeting that I have to jump into. So if there's another question you want me to to answer, I can. Yeah, it's actually the the last question. So what song would appear on the soundtrack to your life? <laughs> <laughs> what song would appear? Oh. Um... There, okay okay i got one um gosh it's an it's a it's an aesop rock song and it's called lucy okay okay i believe no 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 it's not it's not called lucy god i haven't i can't think of the actual name off the top of my head i'll have to like find it real fast um but it would be an aesop rock song but basically i mean the whole story is just talking about an artist that was so focused on making and creating art that uh she basically excluded all socializing, you know, relationships, um, anything like that. And like, just sacrificed everything that, that, you know, that wasn't art to pursue art. Yeah. I would say, I would say chimes by North sea radio orchestra. I love that song. It, it, um, musically lyrically, um, I just has always, uh, made my hair stand up. I love that song. Tommy, 
Kwame, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you. I just wanted to say goodbye. I do have to jump on this call. So um, no worries. Uh, thank you very much for having us on this. And I appreciate your time. And I'm, I'm sorry for, for leaving right at the end. Um, oh, but my, no my boss just called me. So if I don't, if I don't jump on this meeting, I, I feel like I'm going to get near full. <laughs> no problem. Listen, See I really Nick. enjoyed chatting <laughs> with you. Thanks a million. Thank you. thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think that uh, that wraps it up. Listen, I've really enjoyed chatting with you now and getting an insight into your music. And I just want to say the music is great, but your you guys' attitudes, as we say over here, you're great crack. So in my opinion, <laughs> you guys absolutely deserve to blow up all over the place. Thank you so much. It's awesome to hear. And we legit want to go to Ireland and play. So we will let you know when we start organizing something. But but again, I, I appreciate you so much. I, I can speak for everyone in the band. Um, we're just so thankful that you are having us on the show and we can talk about you know something that we absolutely love. So thank you so much.
We are the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes like serial killers and the random one-off murder. We will tell you about bizarre occurrences like alien abductions and monsters in the dark. And we just might get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. At the very end of every show, we like to lighten things up and cleanse the palate from the tragic and terrifying stories. So we end our time with a chaser. You might get to hear crazy stories about our pets or just silly movie recommendations. Give us a listen. We are the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. And if you're interested in signing up the Band Builder Academy, use the link in the show notes below and enter the code CONCERTS and you'll receive 10% off. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey! Hey, what are you guys still doing there? The show's over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.